0: Um, Before we get started, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you this morning for the gift of your word. And Lord, I give thanks to you for Genesis 1. Lord, you know how you use that in my life. And so, Father, I give thanks to you for that memory. And Lord, as we look at this, Lord, I ask that what I attempt to show can be understood and heard. And Lord, there's so much more in this passage that I hope, Lord, my, my desire is that the people hearing this and thinking on Genesis 1 consider some of these other things that I may not even raise so that their understanding of your supremacy, may be highlighted. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as I said, good morning. My goal today is to really give a brief overview of Genesis 1. Um, We're not doing this verse by verse, exegetically. It's really looking at the story and saying, what can we take from that at a, at a higher level. This is not something that we we normally do at GBC, but Brandon and I felt that going through Genesis 1 through 3 um, over the summer to get through the amount of information, this would be the best approach. And so Brandon tasked me involuntarily to do Genesis 1, but... He was kind enough to not just leave me in that bucket. He then also tasked Keith unilaterally to do a piece of Genesis 1. So Keith will be sharing next week, I believe, on the creation of man, which I'm much happier that Keith's doing that than me. (laughs) So anyway, here we go. Brief overview of Genesis 1, picking up from where Brandon ended last week. Since the goal of the sermon is to be more thematic, as I said, I will not be going through verse by verse. But I plan to share some thoughts that hopefully stir up in you a fresh perspective or a different perspective on this much debated passage. Looking back over the past couple of decades in my own life, I realized that when Genesis 1 tended to come up, I tended to gravitate to two similar types of questions. Is Genesis 1 historical or scientific or both? Or did the Lord create in six literal 24-hour days? Or are the days allegorical or something in between? I think that these questions are fruitful issues to work through in your own walk. And I firmly believe that one's answers to these questions impact various doctrinal issues later in Scripture in interesting and subtle ways. And even even though my own conversion process began with me in passing overhearing two fellow believers, although I was unsaved at the time, debating these questions, that is not my focus today. I know in my youthful exuberance, I missed many other things going on in this passage by being too focused on just those two issues. As I said earlier, my hope today is that today's message will stir you up to think more about the Lord and maybe meditate on Him in fresh ways. This brings me to another observation or question Does Genesis matter? Or what is the purpose, or more to the point? What's the application or relevance of Genesis 1 to me, myself, I? It's all about me, right? Although I believe there is a ton of relevance in this passage to us, it is actually more about the Lord. Our focus should not be so inward and selfishly focused. But rather the question we should be asking is, what does the passage say about God? What can we learn about the maker of heaven and earth? And then secondarily, why did he share it with us? It is from this perspective that I raise two questions for you. What does Genesis 1 say or describe or reveal about God? Why did he share it with us? This is the lens that I want us to use as we ponder and examine this first chapter in the book of Genesis. So with that introduction in place, let us jump into the passage. As I indicated earlier, I will not be reading it again, but be providing a high-level overview of what's happened, pulling out some key points, but not all of them. So picking up from Brandon from last week, the first, and frankly, incredible initial revelation out of Genesis is simply that God is there. You'll notice it starts with, in the beginning, God. Not earth, not man, but God. And the second, is the immediate, the second immediate theme is that he initiates time and history, the space-time continuum comes into being. God created the heavens and the earth. He is the prime cause of all things. The Hebrew word used here for create is bara. Bara is only ever associated with God in the act of creating. The essence of this word means to literally create something from nothing or something new or unheard of. It is not manipulating something that was already there. It's that before there was nothing, not even a three-dimensional space. There was exactly nothing. It's not like space today, which we say is empty, a big vacuum with some stars in it. That did not even exist. There was nothing. This is not something that we easily grasp. It's not that there is an empty room that God fills with furniture instantaneously. It's that there is no empty room, no time, no space. And then God borrows something into existence. As we shall see in a bit, this is in contrast to other creation stories from other cultures, where the gods or creators wake up or become self-aware in their creation paradigm, sometimes from bizarre events, which we won't go into today. Our God, the God of the Bible, is always sentient, and always is, not was, is. And as such, he transcends the created order. He is not stuck or bound within it. Before the universe and everything associated with it came into being, he is, not was, he is. He is superior to it all. In short, he has authority and power over the space-time continuum. I think we tend to forget this. We sometimes think of God as being like us, limited or bound in some fashion, but he is not. He is, very, he is a very different being, and in some ways alien or even foreign to us, beyond our comprehension or understanding. The more I've thought this through over the years, the more terrifying he is. He commands awe and respect. We are not like him, and he is a lot more powerful than we are. Yes, he did condescend and become the God-man through the incarnation for our benefit. Remember Jesus in John 14. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me Philip who has seen he who has seen me has seen the father how can you say show us the father we do know from further revelation in scripture such as psalm 103 the lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness But we, in our post-Calvary world, need to remember that He first revealed Himself as the Creator. He demands respect and awe. Back to the text. So God creates the universe and the space-time continuum out of nothing. And verse 2 makes this key statement. The earth was formless and void. God has created stuff or material to work with, but the earth has no structure, and it is empty, barren. So what does God start to do? He speaks. And by the act of simply speaking, things happen. He doesn't use angels, or machines, or hands, or laws of nature, to make things happen. He simply speaks. His voice has enormous power and authority. On day one, he creates the differentiation between light and darkness. On day two, he creates the heavens in contrast to the waters below. And on day three, he separates the land and vegetation from the waters. There's a pattern here. The created order initially had no structure, but after three days, it now has structure. Space is created, the planet is in space, and it has a sea area and a land area. So before the Earth was formless, now it has form. There are locales or defined but different environments or separate categories within the space-time continuum. These places are put into existence deliberately and with purpose. They are not random or happenstance. It is all done with control. But it is in one sense lifeless. Yes, you have the plant life, but you do not have sentient life. There is nothing really filling and enjoying these good environments. However, notice that there is no created light in the darkness, simply the categorization of light and dark. So what does God start to do on day four? He begins filling the formed world, and this filling is increasing in complexity and diversity. On day four, we see him populate dark space with the light givers, planets, stars, moons, quasars. When before there was just open dark space, now we have celestial bodies inside them, providing light in various degrees and ways. And not just randomly, but bound by rules set in place by the creator. On day five, he creates animal life in the oceans and the air. And here, It is noteworthy to point out that he is using his special creation word, bara, again to create animal life. It is something new, special, out of nothing. Sentient life, beings that act by instinct, more complex than vegetation. This is the second use of the word bara in Genesis. And just as the filling on day four ties back to day one, so the filling of the sky and the waters on day five correlates back to the creation of those different spaces created on day two. Remember, on day two, he separated the heavens from the waters. And then on day six, he fills the land the lost, unfilled environment created on day three with animal life and man. Something to point out here is that when man is created, he uses that word bara again, but three times. Man is something special and distinct from the animal kingdom, the pinnacle of creation. But more on that to come in future weeks. I think it's beneficial to have a small digression here on this word bara. Bara is used just over 50 times in the Old Testament. It is exclusively used by God. The second word for make or create in Hebrew is asah. Note that God, both God and man, can asah things. An ability that man shares with his creator. The key difference is that Asa carries the idea of manipulating something that already exists into something else. In other words, it's more like build something. Whereas bara is the act of special creation of something that did not exist before. As such, it makes sense that only God can borrow our stuff, as He is the only one with such power. So when we read David in Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart, O God, does it surprise us that the word used by Scripture here is bara? Of course not. Only the Lord can create a new heart within us that can free us. And David clearly understood that David himself could not make that change in his own strength since all his efforts were tainted and limited. But more on that in Genesis 3. This is then a brief, brief summary of the six days of creation. God speaks stuff into existence from nothing. He then systematically creates structure or order from the stuff and then he starts filling the spaces with increasingly more complicated things and beings. Now you may be thinking, that's a nice story, but does it really matter? Or more bluntly, so what? I would submit this morning just five thoughts or ideas. Not, this is not a limited list, there's much more here, but I'm sticking to these five around those questions. Implication number one for you. God has fiat ownership and control. Being the unilateral creator of everything we see and experience, including ourselves, God has sole rights to his creation. He can do with it as he pleases. If he wishes to remove a mountain or destroy a city, He is perfectly within his rights to do that. This is a very simple and straightforward truth, but a very hard one for us to swallow as it is so sobering. Number two, he has unilateral power. Not only does the Lord have unilateral rights to his creation, he has complete and total mastery over the creation. He is not subject to the laws of the universe that he put into place in the first instance. If he so desires, he can suspend, amend, or change the rules of the universe. And when he, well within his divine rights, decides to override the general laws of the universe, those actions appear to us mere mortals as miracles, but not to him. Number three, this might not be as evident as the first two, he has self-control. Notice in the reading of the passage, there is a timing or a pacing of the activities. The creation week is very structured. God works in a consistent and methodical manner, He works out his plan in an ordered fashion. The universe is not a random mistake. It didn't arise out of a random fit of creative genius. Wakes up one day, I need a universe, and there it is. Doesn't do that. It's not chaotic. There is almost, I think, a sort of relentless inevitability of it all happening. God does not rush, nor does he tarry. I hope at this point that you're starting to see some of the attributes that we know from later passages in Scripture. His patience, his ownership, already being shown in his act of creation. Have you ever thought about why he even took six days? Why not just speak everything into existence immediately? It's not as if he's limited. Why did he take so long? He certainly could have done that. But he deliberately chose not to do that. And I think it is to teach us something about him. Number four, he makes judgments. After multiple days, he expresses his approval and assessment of what he has done. God saw that it was good. And ultimately, when he is done, it was very good. This already starts highlighting that value, meaning, and morality are all rooted in him. These good statements also start to hint and allude to the fact that he is actually interested in his creation. He is neither aloof or indifferent to what is happening in his creation. Additionally, the historical record of miracles also attests to this. If God were a deist, this belief that the deity creates the universe, sets all the rules in motion, and then just lets the clock run out and just sits back and watches it, doesn't do anything, that's a deist. If you were a deist, you would not have miracles because he would be indifferent. He wouldn't care. But that is not the God of the Bible. He didn't just wind up the great clock of the universe and let it unfold. He is active. He is attentive. And then furthermore, to also reinforce a comment from Brandon that he made last week, note in Genesis 1.30, And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth, every, not some, every, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. As part of the Lord's good assessment of his creation, the animal kingdom were all herbivores. In other words, no animal death. Millennia later, Isaiah picks up on this theme. For example, in Isaiah 11, there are other verses as well, but Isaiah 11, 7 through 9. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. These verses point to a clear indication of the undoing of the curse by our Redeemer and a return to the good Edenic state and beyond, as we read in Revelation 21 last week. Death, where is your sting? There is no death. Our fifth and final instructive item for today is one that we take for granted. And this one's an interesting one because back at the time of Exodus, I don't know that they necessarily had the ability to really appreciate this like we do today, but we've become so hardened to it. He is a creative genius. He is a genius. We touched on this a little earlier today. God can create things out of nothing by simply speaking. But consider how original and diverse he is. Remember his mind created out of nothing the following brief incomplete list of aspects and concepts in our world. The mere idea of them did not previously exist. Remember, there was nothing not even the concept. So he comes up with the concept and then the realization of that concept. Time and space. We can't imagine a world without time and space. Yet, he came up with that framework for us. He devised the entire concept of time and space, something that those of us being stuck in it struggle to comprehend an existence without it. Stars, planets, Sight, sound, colors, and the law of physics within which those things operate. Thirdly, plant and animal life and the ecosystems and the chemical laws and processes needed for that life to exist. Just think about the ecosystems and the interplay between the plant life and the animal life in the ecosystem and the robustness of those ecosystems, the ability to adapt with the changing environment. He worked that all out in advance the sheer diversity of categories of created things, and then the incredible diversity within those categories, the number of species we see today, the interconnectedness of ecosystems between plants, animals, chemicals, the complexity of biochemistry, Newtonian mechanics, quantum physics. As man makes further advances in understanding and describing these areas of science, and this is the key point, We need to remember that all these processes and laws were already in existence and in operation in our world long before we started to describe them. And the Creator devised them in eternity past. He did it all in eternity past. Another one which was interesting because there was an article this morning that apparently an engineer at, uh, I think it's Google, is claiming that they have a piece of AI that is showing signs of self-awareness. But, well, jury's still out on that. But just the concept of self-awareness, something that we haven't yet managed to create ourselves. We are self-aware, yet we cannot make a machine that is self-aware. And then, finally, and once again, this is not a comprehensive list. just the intangible characteristics we observe and naturally experience around us. These characteristics and the appreciation of these characteristics. Beauty, loyalty, peace, enjoyment. The list goes on and on and on. Whatever your area of personal interest is in His creation, you need to remember that there is a mind that conceived and created all of what you enjoy. We do not add to this creative genius. We simply copy the ideas and the principles shown to us. I would encourage you to take some time during the next week and simply meditate on whatever the area of the world is that you love. Meditate on the mind that created all of these things, particularly the things that you are passionate about. Music, I didn't mention music. From the smallest to the largest. From the simplest to the most complex. You can start to understand David's reflections on the Lord's mind. Psalm 139, we know this well. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Psalm 40, many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts towards us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Something to point out here is that you do notice how the structured flow of the creation week is in fact the basis for the undergirding or underpinning of our modern day view of science. In his creation week, God is practically showing us a structured and controlled process. In fact, a principled approach to creating. Remember, he didn't need six days. The engineers in the room should grasp this concept rather easily. Things are predictable, they're repeatable. The tone of Genesis 1 is not that of randomness, but of order, organization, and principle. I would submit that one of the primary reasons for the dramatic scientific surge in the the Western world in prior centuries lies in part due to the realization that within the Christian worldview, the world was predictable because an ordered, principled creator had made it so. This brings us to another aspect of the Genesis narrative, that of the polemic against other creation stories in the ancient Near East. If you recall, historical and conservative Christianity considers Moses to be the author of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, with Moses most likely writing the narrative during the wanderings in the desert in its time of writing and its being read or heard, the recipients of the narrative would have been Israelites fleeing Egypt or sojourning in the desert wanderings. So, if you had been born into Israel in Egypt before Exodus, what do you think your beliefs around the creation world could have been? I would suspect that even if you didn't believe it, although you probably did, you would have known the Egyptian creation myth quite well. I think it's instructive for you to have a general understanding as to what the average Egyptian probably believed about the creation of the world. So here it goes. There were at least four different Egyptian creation myths that have been discovered through archaeology. There may have been more, but there are four that, that, that we're aware of today. But here is one, just one of them, from around 1600 BC, which is generally in the ballpark, probably, of Exodus. And this is from the Canadian Museum of History, and I quote, The Book of the Dead, dating to the Second Intermediate Period, or about 1600 BC, describes how the world was created by Atum, the god of Heliopolis, the center of the sun god cult in Lower Egypt. In the beginning, the world appeared as an infinite expanse of dark and directionless water named Nun. Nun was personified as four pairs of male and female deities. Each couple represented one of four principles that characterized Nun, hiddenness or invisibility, infinite water, straying or lack of direction and darkness or lack of light. Artem created himself out of Nun by an effort of will, or by uttering his own name. As the creator of the gods and humans, he was responsible for bringing order to the heavens and the earth. As the lord of the heavens and the earth, he wears the double crown of upper and lower Egypt and carries the ankh, a symbol of life, and was a scepter, a symbol of royal authority. End quote. Now, there's a lot in there you could actually talk about. The similarities are actually very interesting if you think about them and the corruption potentially from the truth as to why you have those similarities, but I'm not doing that today. But it is an interesting thing to think through. But I would say this. Notice that the world appeared, this is under the Egyptian cosmology, the world appeared as an expanse of dark and directionless water. The water was just there. Sounds similar to Genesis, right? But it's fundamentally different. In Genesis, God creates the water. Here, under the Egyptian thinking, it's just there or it randomly appears. And then God, the preeminent Egyptian deity, Atum, in this cosmology, self-creates himself. Remember, he came out of the water. He self-realized himself out of the water. That just happened to be there. He is a creation. This is fundamentally different to the God of Israel. Fundamentally different. If Artem self-created himself, it would indicate that he is limited in some capacity in the world in which he woke up in. Our Lord is not so limited because he, he is, he already is before creation. It's not that he woke up in the universe. He is outside it and created it. Can I explain how that works? No. But that is what Genesis asserts. Also, remember that for the Egyptian religion, the sun represented the supreme deity in the pantheon. As mentioned in this version already, Autumn was the god of Heliopolis, or, in English, the city of the sun. And Heliopolis was the center of the sun god worship. Now, imagine you are a teenager or a young adult Hebrew in the desert. Us older folks, we would have worked this out already, but the youngsters, they, they would need to, to pick up on this. You know, Imagine you're a, you're a young adult Hebrew in the desert. You've just gone through the Exodus. What are you seeing every day? The sun is there every day. In your mind, the question must be raised, Is that autumn? Is that Ra? Is that the Egyptian god up there? Yes, you've got the pillar in front of you, but the sun is up there. And it's in that mindset that Genesis is given to the Israelites. And so how does Jehovah refer to the sun in his creation account? And that's verse 16. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. Jehovah doesn't even deign to name the sun. It doesn't warrant him calling it the sun. It is just the greater light that I put there. That is his perspective on the Egyptian god, Autumn or Ra. And for the Marvel fans out there, I'm afraid to say that Konshu doesn't make the cut either. The lesser light for the night, the moon, is not mentioned by name either. That was in there for my son, who I don't think heard it. But anyway. The moon was also a favorite god of the Egyptians. There's almost a sense of disdain, and rightly so, because they are inanimate things created by the creator. They are not even alive. And... He waits until the fourth day to create them. Do You start to see the polemic against the general accepted thinking of the times, forcing people to think and contemplate these things. And in fact, you can see the same principle in play today. When scientists perform experiments or come up with new theorems, do they do that using a structured, patient, consistent method Or do they create new things out of random acts? And yet, how do the secularists say that the world arrived? By a structured, patient, consistent method, or by randomness? Fundamental philosophical disconnect there. And just to reaffirm that I'm not simply making assertions that fit what we see today in the passage of Genesis 1, Please turn to Genesis 8, verses 21 and 22. The great flood is over. Noah has left the ark and has given the Lord a burnt offering of thanksgiving, thanking the Lord for saving him and his family and bringing them into, in a sense, the recreated world post-judgment. And this is the Lord's response. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil. Notice the grace. From his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And this is the key point. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. What's the promise that the Lord gives to mankind? Consistency in the order and the running of the world. No fundamentally random changes to the running of creation. Yes, because of sin there will be an apparent, apparent acts of random chaos. But up will be up, down will be down. The sun will rise and it will set. The seasons will come and the seasons will go. Things will go on as they have gone on before. Brandon referenced this last year, the uniformitarian principle. It's already here. In short, the world will be a place of rational reality in which man can expect consistent actions And reactions. A world in which science and engineering can flourish. But also notice the caveat at the start of verse 22. There will be an end. There will be another judgment. Just not by water. So where are we? Genesis 1 lays out some very important expectations of what we would expect to see in the world. Order. Structure, purpose, beauty, even personality. But more importantly, it starts to frame out just how powerful, creative, and detailed our God is. He is something very different from other conceptions of God. He is someone who we need to respect and interrelate with cautiously, reverently, should He deign. To interact with us. And this response brings us. To I think another major theme in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1. Our English Bibles. In our English Bibles. God identifies himself simply as. God. However in the original Hebrew. In Genesis 1. He only uses the Hebrew word. Elohim. The mention of Jehovah. Jehovah does not occur until Genesis 2-4. You probably have in Genesis 1 simply the word God, while in Genesis 2-4, in English, it's probably the Lord God. The difference is the addition in Genesis 2 of the Lord's personal name, which I hope will be further addressed in upcoming sermons. But for today, the point is that in the first entire first chapter of Genesis, only the name or title of Elohim is used when describing God. So what does Elohim mean or convey? Simply, basic form, Elohim is the Hebrew word for gods. However, throughout the Old Testament, when the word is used in reference to the Lord, the Hebrew grammar indicates a single being with the concept of plurality in singleness. The idea being conveyed is that the Lord is the God of gods. He He is above all others who aspire to deity. Remember the polemic from earlier today, multiple Egyptian gods. He is the one above those. The Egyptians have many gods in their pantheon, but Elohim transcends them all. Elohim conveys the sense of the Supreme One, the transcendent one, or put another way, the great I Am. He simply is. Before anything was, He is. He simply always is. I would submit that one of the driving thrusts in Genesis one is that the creator is someone whom we cannot fathom, contain, or to whom we struggle to fully relate. He's fundamentally beyond our full comprehension. This is also reinforced from his actions in the text. His unilateral power displayed simply through speech and all that occurs in accordance to his purpose. There is no outside or inside help or machines, or deviations from his plan. Everything he does in Genesis 1 is good and ultimately very good. I know I've pushed on this concept of God's total supremacy and awesomeness. But I think for us, on the other side of the cross, we tend to focus on Christ's humanity. This makes so much sense as it is the part of him that is like us. Easier for us to relate to. But from John 1, 1 through 3, we know that in the beginning was the Word. In other words, Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, not at the beginning, in the beginning. All things came into being through Him and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. As such, we know that the Christ brought all these things into being. In other words, Jesus is the same person that we have been describing in Genesis 1. He is the one who, for example, conceived and brought into being the seven to eight million species we see today. Species. Of which humanity has About 8 billion individuals inside one of those 7 to 8 million species. Carefully and meticulously designed. Our Lord Jesus is this creative genius. And yet, this God-man, with all this power, genius, and creativity, empties himself and condescends to wash the feet of the creatures He made who are in rebellion against Him in John 13. As we sit on this side of the cross and enjoy the many comforting truths and reassurances that Jesus brought us, we also need to remember that He leads by example for us to follow. Do we, who are in Christ, aligned with Christ, do we show patience to misguided and offensive people just like he did? Do we think more of our neighbors, let alone our pets, than ourselves, just as he did? Especially those that we secretly think are less than us intellectually less than us spiritually, less than us financially? Do we forgive trespasses against us as comprehensively as he did? Do we treat others the way Jesus treats us? Do we understand the self-control that he has exhibited toward mankind since the fall in Genesis 3. This supreme one, the God of gods, who can do anything he wants according to his character, have we really meditated on just how big he is and what that says about his grace towards us? Do we respond to him with awe and thankfulness and follow him? This is our calling. It is the calling of the Supreme Creator to pick up our cross and follow Him because that is what He did for us. Thank you.